the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll hear from Senator Gary Peters today about what's going on in Washington with the Build Back Better package that passed the House earlier this month. Will the Senate do the same? And then we're going to talk about the Omicron variant of COVID-19, what we should know and what we should be prepared for. I'll also offer some initial thoughts on the mass school shooting in Oxford this week. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've chosen to join us. So we are still learning lots of details about what happened yesterday at a high school in Oxford, Michigan, here in southeast Michigan. But there are some things we know. A 15-year-old got his hands on a gun, came into the school, and shot as many people as he could. He killed three students in that school. Imagine what those families are going through right now. It's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving when this happens, a time when all of us are really in great moods, I think, about the holiday that happened, about the holiday that is coming, about the holiday season. And now it's about grief, unimaginable, wasteful loss. Of course, this is not the first time this has happened. Not in Michigan, not in the United States. We've become used to this. Literally, the news cycle is just about waiting for the next instance of someone who shoots people in a school. We don't know about the motive here. We don't know about the circumstances that led to this. We're going to learn those things over the next few days. And certainly for a long time, I think we will be unpacking what happened, peeling back the layers of how something like this happened. But I think there are some questions that we can already be asking ourselves that could lead us to a better place, to a more rational and sane world where going to school is not indulging terror, is not clouded 
by the sense that you could be killed for no reason. We know, for instance, that this 15-year-old got his hands on a gun that his father bought on Black Friday just a few days ago. How does that happen? What's going on in that household that this child could even get access to a weapon like that? That's one of the questions we ought to be asking. And we ought to be asking about responsibility in the wake of all of this. Is the parent who bought this gun liable in some way? Should he be? When we ask these questions too often in places like Lansing and Washington, we don't have the conversation we're supposed to have. We don't get to the crux of the issue. That's because there are powerful lobbies that cloud it. There are intense feelings, individual feelings about rights that make it difficult to come up with solutions, change. But again, I'm just reminded over and over, I see the pictures of these three dead kids that there's no excuse for this. We're not doing enough. We're not doing the right things. We're not having the right conversations. And until we do, this is what we're going to live with. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Your kid is dead. Is that who we want to be? We can do better. In the next few days, we're going to talk more about this as we learn more about what happened, about the specifics of all of this. And we'll hear from you. I really want to have a conversation with you, our listeners, about what you're willing to do. What are you willing to consider? What should we be thinking about to make sure that things like this certainly don't happen as much as they do? Maybe it's impossible to eliminate something like this in a country that worships guns the way we do. There are more guns than people in the United States. But it happens so frequently. Can't we figure a way to do that differently? Can't we figure a way to make sure that families don't experience this as often as they do? Okay. Yesterday, before the shooting took place in Oxford, I had a chance to catch up with U.S. Senator Gary Peters. It is now up to U.S. Senate Democrats to determine the fate of President Joe Biden's signature social spending legislation. The U.S. House passed the massive Build Back Better package earlier this month, and that would make some of the boldest investments in what Democrats are calling human infrastructure. 
universal pre-K, expanded child care, health care, climate change mitigation, and many more things. But there's some skepticism about the future of this legislation in the Senate. Last week on the show, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib said that by decoupling the package from the infrastructure bill, supporters had lost their leverage and that the bill and its impact are now what she says is in jeopardy. I asked Senator Peters yesterday about what he thought of that assessment and many more things. Here's that conversation. Senator Peters, welcome back to Detroit Today. Well, Stephen, always a pleasure to be with you. Yes, great to have you here. So let's start here with what uh, Congresswoman Tlaib said to us last week on our show. She has concerns that Build Back Better is in jeopardy, or at least that its overall impact is in jeopardy. And what she means by that is that in order to pass, she thinks they'll have to gut all of the really significant investments that uh, the bill originally contained. What, what's your take on all of that? We'll see how this process uh, plays out, but I'm, but I'm confident that uh, it will pass. Uh, it'll uh, uh, Hopefully we'll be able to get it on the floor in the next uh, couple of weeks, and certainly there's a, a strong sentiment among my colleagues so that we get this done uh, before Christmas. So uh, we're just working through the process, parliamentary process right now, but bottom line, uh, it's important that we get this passed. Uh, these, these, as you've mentioned in the opening here, these are critical investments, uh, also ways to lower costs uh, for families uh, across the, the country. Uh, this is a, a major piece of legislation that will impact families in a meaningful way. We want to get it done. So the sticking point, or at least one of the sticking points in this legislation, seems to be the paid leave provision of the bill. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is of course, a very critical vote for Democrats, says he's just not on board with that, even though it's already been scaled back to just four weeks. Uh, it sounds like the expectation now is that paid leave may not be included in the final bill. Is that something you're willing to accept? Well, I, I think uh, the, the bill will look different uh, when it comes out of the Senate, and, and that would have been the case regardless of what happened with uh, the bipartisan uh, legislation. To me, that, that was separate. It was critically important that that got passed. It's uh, significant investments uh, in roads and bridges uh, in Michigan and in high-speed uh, internet. It was investments in our port facilities, uh, investments uh, in electric uh, charging infrastructure, which is critical for the electrification of the fleet. That was a, an incredibly important bill that needed to get passed. It did. Uh, but the bill back better was uh, when it goes through the Senate, it certainly would go through its uh, negotiations, uh, just like bills get when they go through the House. And we're a different body and we have different dynamics. Uh, but bottom line, what we need to do is uh, understand that we should celebrate what comes out uh, of the Senate, which I think will have a meaningful impact in people's lives. So can you talk just a little more about these tensions among Democrats in the in the Senate, the, the the push and pull, I guess, of the more liberal members of of the caucus and the centrist or more conservative elements of the Democratic Party, Senator Joe Manchin, uh, Senator Sinema from Arizona, we've heard a lot about why it's impossible to just get everything done because there are differing opinions. I wonder how you feel about that kind of, I guess, compromise and whether whether people who voted for Democrats in such large numbers 
in 2020 sh should be satisfied with uh, this process? Why shouldn't Democrats say, why can't we get everything that we thought we were going to get when we elected a Democratic president and gave Democrats control of the entire Congress? Well, uh, certainly uh, uh, every every uh, senator uh, represents uh, their state uh, and they represent the, the views uh, from their state. And so folks who, who vote for, for a particular senator in that state uh, certainly have certain expectations uh, from that senator. But we should, should understand that we have 50 states uh, in this uh, great country of ours, and there's a broad uh, band of views that people have uh, in those uh, various states. And so the, just part of the democratic process is that there's compromise and, and give and take. It's uh, part of the art of governing. And, and I guess I would say nobody ever, in, in my, my, my uh, time here in Washington, D.C., nobody ever gets everything that they want. Uh, and that seems to be that way in life. We all don't get everything we want in life uh, as well. We have to compromise. Uh, we have to find common ground. Uh, but ultimately, we've got to get things done. And that's what's going to happen. I'm talking with uh, U.S. Senator Gary Peters, a Democrat from here in Michigan. We're talking about the Build Back Better legislation, which is being debated in the U.S. Senate right now. Uh, Gary, I also want to talk about the infrastructure bill, which was signed into law earlier this month. Uh, talk about the important impact that you feel like that will have here in Michigan. Well, it's uh, going to have significant uh, impact uh, for, for Michigan uh, you know, billions of dollars available to fix our roads, uh, which we know uh, are continuing to fall in uh, disrepair. And this will be a, a major shot in the arm in terms of uh, resources to, to put into roads uh, and bridges. Also to connect everybody to high-speed broadband Internet, uh, particularly in our rural areas. And we saw the, the, the uh, challenges of not everyone being on high-speed Internet uh, in very stark terms uh, during the as we've been suffering through this uh, pandemic and more of our activity has gone online, there are a great uh, a gulf between folks who have those services and folks uh, who don't. Uh, that will be uh, will be plugged uh, in, a, in addition to the fact that uh, we'll be dealing with resiliency and climate change. You know, I was able to get a provision in that bipartisan infrastructure bill it was my Storm Act. Uh, I, I passed the Storm Act authorization uh, uh, earlier in the year that would provide uh, very low interest loans to communities to build their infrastructure uh, in a way that's more resilient to storms uh, that are rising as a result of climate change. We know we're seeing uh, storms increase in frequency and more importantly and more dangerously, uh, they are uh, also more severe. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, much of our infrastructure isn't designed to handle that. And it's very expensive uh, to fix that. We've seen the impact of flooding throughout metro Detroit area as a result of infrastructure that's not designed to handle the severity of some of the storms that we're seeing. Uh, and now in this uh, infrastructure bill that's passed, signed into law, uh, additional $500 million will be available for communities uh, to uh, invest in that resiliency. And it's just plain good common sense. So we know that every dollar you invest up front in making your infrastructure more resilient to storms you end up saving $6 in taxpayer money because it's a whole lot more expensive to pick up the pieces after a storm than it is to, to build it strong uh, from the outset. Uh, that's going to be a significant advantage uh, for us in Michigan as around the country, and I hope to continue to get funding for that program in the years ahead. But mm -hmm. I think we'll see the results of those certainly uh, in the coming years. Yeah. So uh, I want to change subjects just a little here and talk about a roundtable 
you held this week with U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo, as well as Senator Stabenow from here in Michigan, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, and UAW President Ray Curry and others to discuss the ongoing semiconductor chip shortage. Of course, this is causing all kinds of supply chain uh, issues here in in our country and and around the world. Uh, Secretary Raimondo is calling on Congress to approve $52 billion to boost domestic production of these semiconductors. Uh, How has that idea been received on Capitol Hill? Well, we uh, we passed it out of uh, the Senate as part of a competitiveness bill that we passed here earlier, uh, which is uh, $52 billion uh, to uh, promote uh, the manufacture of semiconductors here in the country. Uh, $50 billion of that uh, is to make sure we have uh, fabrication facilities building the next generation of semiconductors uh, as we move uh, into artificial intelligence and a lot of other advanced applications uh, for chips. Uh, but I was able to secure an additional uh, $2 billion for legacy chips. These are older chips, but these are older chips that are in our automobiles uh, and uh, in our washing machines and everyday products. And certainly we are feeling the impact of the fact that we are overly dependent on these legacy chips from places like Taiwan and South Korea and increasingly from China uh, as uh, as a result of uh, – uh, those shortages. Uh, our automobiles are sitting on uh, in parking lots, fully built, but waiting for a semiconductor chip before they can go to the dealer. It's having a major impact on production and jobs uh, in our in our state, and it's clear we have to onshore that manufacturing. And this uh, legislation is critically important to get passed. It's in the House right now. It's passed the Senate. Uh, certainly, my House colleagues that were at the roundtable yesterday were fully supportive of it. But uh, we've got to get the House to pass that out. Right now, I understand that uh, Leader Schumer and Speaker Pelosi are negotiating a package that will hopefully be before us uh, soon so we can get it passed. Mm. Okay, I also can't uh, let you go without talking about the latest in the pandemic. Lots of people are really concerned about the spread of the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Uh, What is the federal response going to look like? What should it look like? And I guess, do you think we're, we're doing enough? Well, we, we have to be all in on this. It's very uh, concerning. But I, I just have to say at the, at the outset, uh, the one thing that uh, should be first in everybody's mind is get vaccinated. Uh, the, this is what happens when folks are not vaccinated. Uh, it allows uh, the virus uh, to uh, mutate uh, at an accelerated rate. That's just part of the biology of these things. Uh, and so vaccinations are important. And if we have uh, if we have a strain, and we still we still don't know a whole lot about it right now, but it's very concerning that it could be uh, more easily transmutable, as well as uh, could be more uh, uh, could be more severe in terms of getting around some of our preparations. We don't know, but but in the meantime, uh, folks need to to get vaccinated, and as we learn more about uh, uh, this particular virus, uh, can then uh, uh, prepare for it. I, I know our pharmaceutical companies, especially with this new technology, they are. are mRNA technology, it is very adaptable. So it uh, is certainly conceivable if uh, vaccines are, 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 less, uh, uh, are less effective. We don't know. They, they may still be fully effective. But if they're less uh, effective, uh, new variations of that vaccine can be produced uh, relatively quickly, certainly much quicker than the, the initial vaccine uh, in coming out. So, uh, But we have to wait and see. I think it's important for us to uh, continue to take the precautions that we all take between vaccines and masks. Uh, but uh, 
watch uh, this closely, and, and I know uh, certainly our folks at CDC and others are are working to try to get in more information about this virus as quickly as possible to understand exactly what we're dealing with. Okay, Senator Gary Peters, a Democrat from here in Michigan, always great to catch up with you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Steve. Have a great day. You too. That was my conversation yesterday with U.S. Senator Gary Peters. As a reminder, he and I spoke before the school shootings in Oxford. I'm sure he has many thoughts about that that I was not able to capture because uh, it had not yet happened when we had the interview. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear from a University of Michigan infectious disease expert about the new Omicron variant. What we know, what we don't know, and what we should be preparing for. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've joined us today. This week, Michigan hit a dreadful new milestone. We now have the highest number of adults hospitalized with COVID-19 since the pandemic began. I'm going to say that again for emphasis. We now have the highest number of adults hospitalized with COVID-19 since the pandemic began, at a time when so many of us hoped we'd be moving past this chapter in our lives, the virus is surging to unprecedented levels. And that's with vaccines widely available and lots of people agreeing to take them. And if that weren't bad enough, many of us are worried about this new variant that has emerged and is spreading around the world. The Omicron variant is the latest thing to hit the news. If you watch cable news at all, that's all you're hearing about right now. Where it is, whether it's making people sick, and whether it will come here to North America and the United States. Here to talk about what we need to know about what we know about the Omicron variant, and maybe more importantly, what we don't know about it, is someone who studies and sequences variants right here in Michigan. Adam Loring is an associate professor of microbiology and immunology and infectious diseases at the University of Michigan Medical School. And as I said, he studies and sequences variants of this virus. Adam Loring, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So overall, tell me how concerned you are right now about this new variant of the coronavirus. Sure. I, I, I am concerned, um, but I, I guess I'm always concerned. Um, <laughs> it's what I do. And, uh, but I think it's important uh, to 
for everyone to remember that we know so very little right now. And I think in the next weeks to months even, we'll learn a lot more. And so it's easy to have good concern, you know, go from good concern where you're paying attention and learning to uh, perhaps not unhelpful concern or panic. Um, because there's still a lot we don't know uh, at this stage. Mm. So I, I'm really glad you are with us because we have been talking on our program for a really long time about variants and the way they uh, the way they come up, the way they happen, uh, the way they interact with the vaccines that we are all taking. And and so I want to start with you just talking a little about your work. Your lab uploads the second most variant data in Michigan behind the state lab. You study RNA viruses, which include coronaviruses, and you're evaluating this rapid mutation rate and the implications for human disease. Talk just a little about what variants are how they happen, and again, how they interact with the things that we are already doing to try to minimize the spread and the lethality, of course, of the coronavirus. Uh, well, uh, technically, a variant is just any virus that's different from any other virus. It varies. Uh, in, the, in talking about COVID, of course, since probably January 2021, we've been Thinking of variants as these, you know, big new uh, strains or you know different versions of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, uh, and trying to understand how they are different and what it means for us. And so, to the biology is, you know, these viruses every time they um, copy themselves, they make mistakes and they make mutations in their genome. Uh, and uh, viruses like SARS-CoV-2 will do this at a higher rate than many other viruses, uh, but not as high as some. And, you know, sometimes these mutations take off uh, and because they help the virus be a better virus. Uh, and then the, the trick is then to try to understand which mutations are important, which mutations aren't that important. Uh, and, you know, I think the focus has been for most of this year with each variant, trying to understand which of these mutations uh, have an impact on uh, whether the virus spreads from one person to another better, uh, whether the virus uh, causes a more severe disease, and what these mutations mean uh, in terms of the vaccines uh, and uh, to a lesser extent in terms of the treatments uh, for people uh, who have COVID. Mm. So what do we know about this particular variant at this point and what do we not know about it? Yeah, what we do know, and I think what set off alarm bells uh, on Thanksgiving Day, I think it was, uh, uh, when it hit the news, is that it has a lot of mutations in what's called the spike protein. The spike protein is uh, the protein on the surface of the virus that helps the virus latch on to our cells and get in. Uh, so it's the first point of contact. And so it's a very important protein for the virus. And mutations there, we know from other variants, can have a big impact on how the virus spreads. Uh, and of course, the spike protein is also uh, what we train our bodies to fight uh, with the vaccines, uh, the mRNA vaccines and uh, the other 
uh, platforms will uh, code for the spike protein. So it shows our body the spike protein. And we know that the Omicron variant has a lot of mutations. And so uh, they're, what, that's what makes it concerning uh, is that the spike protein could be different enough uh, that we don't recognize it as well, even when vaccinated. Uh, I emphasize could because there's a lot still to be learned, but that's why we're paying attention to it. And then uh, the spike protein also may change the behavior of the virus with all these mutations. Uh, so I think those, those right now, that's what we know. Um, and uh, that's enough to get us to study it and, and really pay attention to it. Uh, and I, oh, again, over the next weeks to months, we'll learn a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, and right now there's a lot of speculation. Uh, but, you know, I think the level of concern uh, is, you know, appropriate given, you know, what we've learned about this virus over the past two years. So I also wonder what you make of the possibility, at least, that the variant is already here in the United yeah. States without being confirmed. I think there's this moment right now where when when one of these variants pops up, I think in, in a lot of our minds, we think, well, maybe it won't, maybe it won't get here to the United States, or maybe we won't have to deal with this one the way we did with others. But that's not a very realistic expectation, I think. Uh, I, I suspect that the spread of this particular disease is something that is not, is probably not going to respect uh you know, oceanic or, or other geopolitical borders. Yeah, I, I think if I if I were a betting man, I would say it's already in the U.S. Um, you know, I mean, of course, we know it's in North America, uh, just across the border in Ontario. Uh, given just the connected world we live in, it's hard to imagine uh, that uh, it's not already in the U.S. And if not, that it won't be here very soon. Uh, and that's based on just our history with this virus and with infections in general. Um, and, uh, you know, we've certainly seen with all the variants that, you know, we, we, they do pop up in the U.S. So I, I do suspect it's, it's out there. Um, but I, I think it is important for your listeners to realize that whether it's here or not, it's at a very low, it's likely at a very low level uh, at present. And uh, we, are, of course, as you said at the outset in Michigan, dealing with a, a surge uh, in cases that are due to the Delta variant. Uh, and you know we've got we've got a lot to focus on there, um, and I think there's a lot we can do there, uh, you know, while we're evaluating this Omicron variant, and we shouldn't be distracted from uh, the task at hand. Hmm. I'm talking with Adam Loring, an associate professor of microbiology and immunology and infectious diseases at the University of Michigan Medical School. We're talking about the Omicron variant of the COVID-19. Uh, virus, uh, what it is, what we know about it, why we should be concerned, why we shouldn't be overly concerned, and what we ought to be expecting over the next couple of weeks as we learn more about this particular variant of the disease. We would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. What did you think and feel when you first heard about this new variant of the coronavirus. Do you think it's going to change your behavior as you venture out into the world? What do you think this is going to mean for our lives for the foreseeable future? And do you think government officials are doing a good job of preparing for these new variants? Also, as always, 
call and tell us about your sense of the vaccines uh, for coronavirus. Uh, have you taken the vaccine? Have you gotten a booster for that vaccine? And tell me how that changes the way that you're interacting in the world. Tell me how that changes the way you take in news like this about a new variant. Uh, does it make you feel more secure that you got a vaccine? Does it make you feel more secure that you got a booster? Uh, or are you still pretty worried about the spread of this disease? And in addition to taking a vaccine and a booster, booster are you also uh, still distancing? Are you still wearing a mask? Are you still doing all of the things that we had to do in the last year and a half just to survive the pandemic? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation that way. Also, just give us a call if you've got any sort of general question about these variants, where they come from, how they work, how they interact with uh, a population that is more and more vaccined. Uh, Adam Loring is one of the leading experts, uh, not just in our country, but in the world uh, on these issues uh, and, and understands it in really complex ways. Uh, it's a real privilege really to have him here with us. Uh, and you will get to ask him direct questions uh, about about how, how all this works. Again, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, before we get to listeners, Adam, I want to talk just a little about the initial reports from South African doctors who've been treating patients with this variant. And they seem to be saying that the symptoms seem to be less severe. I wonder how much weight you put on those early reports and whether they might be about vaccinations and people who are vaccine being less susceptible to the worst parts of coronavirus, or are they maybe about the variant itself maybe not being as as virulent as, as the others that we've seen? I, I certainly value the reports, and I will emphasize, I think, the, the what we're seeing from the South African scientific and clinical community is remarkable. And uh, it's just, they, they've they've alerted the world and we're getting uh, every day uh, great data from South Africa and other countries. I, I do think the whole question of how severe the disease is, does the virus, you know, uh, cause more severe disease? I think it's, I, I urge caution. I think it's going to take a while for us to really figure that out. We're still learning about severity of alpha, uh, which emerged uh, in January uh, in the state of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're still learning a lot about Delta, uh, which arrived uh, in late spring. So these studies are very hard to do. Uh, there's a lot of issues uh, uh, that you need to look into when assessing severity uh, and also vaccination. And then we also need to remember that we uh, live in a very different landscape uh, than South Africa, particularly in how many people are vaccinated uh, and also how our health system will work um, and how our populations differ. So uh, we're looking for clues from South Africa and will be valuable, but there are going to be 
some differences. Um, and I think over the next weeks to months, people are really going to uh, delve into this in detail. Um, I think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I want to inject a Twitter comment into this particular point in the in the conversation. Big Neo says the new variant will be another loud talking point for the anti-vaxxer and conspiracy people out there. Nothing short of them getting extremely sick will will change their minds. Um, this this idea of people getting sick even though they're vaccinated is one of the challenges that we have. And I know that that's a much more complex issue than than just saying, well, the vaccine is not 100% effective. Um, I, I wonder if you can talk just a little about that, though, that that uh, this these questions that people have about the vaccines and whether they really are going to protect us from from these variants as they continue to to pop up. That's that's a great question, and it's a topic that, of course, comes up a lot. And I think we need to think about what we are saying when we're talking about the vaccine works or the vaccine doesn't work, uh, because there's lots of different ways that vaccines work. And uh, one way to say, is it preventing someone from getting infected or not? And there's been a huge emphasis on breakthrough infections, right? Um, uh, or does the vaccine protect you from getting really sick? Does it protect you from getting hospitalized? Does it protect you from dying? Uh, and I think what we've seen uh, over over the last year and uh, more recently with the Delta variant is while some of these variants will, uh, you know, maybe you know, re- lead to reduced um, you know, effectiveness of the vaccine against uh, infection or mild disease, the vaccines remain remarkably protective against getting really sick. Uh, and so I think we need to do a better job at messaging uh, and discussing what breakthrough infections really are um, and, uh, you know, focus also on, you know, the, the durability of the how vaccines work against the more severe outcomes and what we're looking for uh, from vaccines. I, I want to quite happy that, it, you know, the vaccine is going to do a great job at preventing me from getting infected or dying. Mm. Uh, and I'm also uh, comfortable with how they're going to allow me to protect others that I'm close to and my community. And I think that needs to be the message uh, around vaccination. And I suspect the same will hold against Omicron. I suspect, and this is wild speculation, that we will see reduction in how well the vaccine works against getting infected. Mm-hmm. But I am optimistic that we will still see uh, protection against more severe disease. And I think that is a, a big win, and that's where we should focus. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Adam Loring of the University of Michigan Medical School. We will get to more of your calls and comments as well. Carolyn and Jeremy in Royal Oak, Eric in Detroit, you'll be up first. Uh, we also will get to some more social media comments when we get back. If you want to join, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. And you can always go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. And then we will try to get them into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
for you today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Adam Loring. He's an associate professor of microbiology and immunology and infectious diseases at the University of Michigan Medical School. Uh, he runs a lab that uploads the second most variant data in Michigan behind the state lab. Uh, he studies RNA viruses. Uh, we're talking about the new Omicron variant of the COVID-19 virus that is uh, still raging our planet with a pandemic, uh, although we are doing, of course, much better with illness and death caused by the coronavirus thanks to the vaccines that are available now to anyone who's over the age of five uh, in this country. Uh, as always, we want to hear from you about what you make of the Omicron variant, what you make of this moment in the pandemic. Uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDT Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with uh, Eric in Detroit. Eric, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Stephen. How are you doing this morning? Good. How are you? I'm all right. Um, I have a, kind of a two-part question. Uh-huh. Um, I read in WSJ published a story about a study that the National Institute of Health did uh, about mixing and matching uh, the booster with uh, your original shot, mm-hmm. saying that there's evidence that it provided uh, more comprehensive immunity. Um, my question is, is that true? And what does that mean as far as or is there are are there any is there any evidence to suggest it it is more effective against the Omicron uh, strain? Yeah. Human- Great questions, Eric. I, I saw that same report. And of course, I've heard lots of other people talking about this idea of mixing and matching your vaccine and the booster and whether they think that gives you some advantage. Uh, Adam Loring, talk about uh, how we should be thinking about that. Sure. I think uh, it's it's complicated. I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> I, what I, as I've kind of looked through the data, and I must say I, I probably missed half of it because there's just so much data out there. I My, my sense is that uh, mixing and matching is fine. I don't see any problem with it. I do, my, my recommendations to folks are that uh, in general, if they got say the J&J vaccine, I, I tend to recommend uh, that they get a, a mRNA vaccine boost. So that would be the Moderna or the Pfizer uh, vaccines as, as uh, their booster. Uh, it's less clear to me that if you got uh, either the Pfizer or Moderna originally, uh, whether uh, switching from Moderna to Pfizer, Pfizer, Moderna, I doubt that makes a huge difference. Hmm. Uh, and I doubt that I'm, I'm less clear that taking a J&J booster after getting the Moderna or Pfizer um, really provides much benefit. Uh, in terms of the second part of the question, uh, in terms of the Omicron variant, we don't know. Uh, what we do know is that the, the booster dose may broaden your immune response to a certain extent. And so even though you're getting the same vaccine uh, three times, even if it's mixed or matched, you're essentially getting the same uh, uh, component of the virus, mm-hmm. uh, that it you get a more broad response. Each time your body sees that, 
it tinkers with its uh, antibodies and uh, that helps you uh, fight viruses uh, uh, that might even be a little bit different. And so I think that's part of the rationale for some of the booster recommendations recently. Hmm. Uh, we have a related question from a caller who couldn't stay on the line and they're asking whether the booster is protecting people from dying. Have people died who have gotten the booster? And I guess are people uh, doubly protected in a way that that makes, I guess, an exponential difference perhaps between just having taken the vaccine? Yeah, I, I must say I don't know. Uh, you know, I I wouldn't doubt that there are people out there who have been boosted uh, who have died. Uh, I, you know, just given the numbers, mm -hmm. uh, what I can say is the latest data on just the two dose series, uh, the people, uh, the number of people who die after that is, is low. Um, the vaccines are greater than 90% effective uh, in preventing death uh, due to COVID. Uh, even with Delta. Uh, and so, but uh, there are groups who don't have great responses to the vaccines. Uh, there's, uh, you know, people uh, with organ transplants or other uh, medical conditions may not respond as well, even to a booster. And so they're at risk. And to me, that underlies, you know, the importance of increasing the number of people overall who are vaccinated because that by by more of us being vaccinated, we protect uh, the vulnerable uh, people among us. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Paula in Gross Point Park. Paula, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, my question is, in trying to plan for, you know, the Christmas holiday um, and being around family who are all vaccinated within six months or have a booster, I'm wondering, since Omicron is unknown, how, like, how quickly might it spread so that it would be a factor in maybe canceling plans for a fully vaccinated family get-together hmm. by Christmas? That's, that's a great... It would spread once it gets here. Yeah, it's a great question, Paula. It's one of the things that I think is on a lot of people's minds right now is how all of this will affect the holiday season. Uh, Adam Loring, what's what's your advice? Well, I my advice would be that I wouldn't change my plans just because it's Omicron. Uh, I, I, but I would urge caution uh, in gatherings now. Um, I'm not saying don't gather, uh, but, uh, you know, do testing. Uh, I, I'm glad that everyone in your family is vaccinated. Uh, I can just give you an anecdote. Uh, we were, my family was planning on traveling over Thanksgiving to visit uh, a family who lives in another state. And uh, we actually canceled the last minute because we weren't, uh, there were just a lot of people. And it's just, mm. when you when you gather around for a meal, uh, that there is a risk there. And, and so I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying that, um, you know, you, you've already done number one and making sure everyone's vaccinated. Um, but, you know, I'd encourage testing uh, as well, uh, you know, ahead of gatherings uh, to further, you know, reduce the risk of, of, of COVID ruining this uh, wonderful family gathering. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, in terms of Omicron, I wouldn't change anything based on that. I mean, clearly we've got a lot of Delta here in Michigan. 
and I would, you know, give the same uh, recommendation uh, regardless of what variants out there. But you know, the caller may be thinking, is Omicron going to be here by Christmas? I would suspect that we will see Omicron in Michigan by Christmas. Hmm. So we've only got a few minutes left, but I want to go back to something that I mentioned in the open for this conversation, and that is this new milestone here in Michigan that we have more adults hospitalized with COVID-19 than at any other point in the pandemic. It's not a, it's not a positive milestone. It, it worries me pretty seriously, in fact, about what we're, what we're doing, but, but I'd do want to give you a chance uh, as somebody who's studying this disease to talk about what that means, what we ought to be thinking about when we process that that kind of information, and I guess uh, what what perhaps you think we could be doing to be in a in a different space. Boy, I wish I knew. Yeah, I you know I I every morning I look at the case numbers and the hospitalization numbers, and my heart sinks. Uh, you know, it's just where we are as a state is, uh, uh, it's sad. And I think we could, we can do a better job. And, uh, I think the number one thing we need to do is increase our vaccination, uh, rate, uh, in the state, uh, that I think is just, it's so important. And the data suggests really, if we want to cut down on hospitalizations and deaths, that's what we need to do. And then beyond that, there are other things there's, you know, masking, physical distancing, um, you know, testing and screening, there are all these tools we have. Uh, and, you know, at this stage of the pandemic, we really know a lot about what to do. Um, and we just, as a, as a, a community, as a state, we need to just do a better job at that. And so I urge your listeners, if they aren't vaccinated, to discuss with your um, healthcare providers and your family about it and, and get some information because it's, it's really so important uh, for keeping all of us healthy. Yeah. Okay, uh, Adam Loring, it was really great to have you here to share all the things that you really know and understand about this with our listeners. Thanks so much for joining the program. Well, thank you. It's been great. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Be sure to come back tomorrow when we are going to talk more about the horrific school shooting in Oxford, Michigan. Can try to start to drill down on what happened and what the opportunity is here for us to make changes that would prevent some of these things from happening and certainly from happening as frequently as they do in our country. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Nora Ryan and Sam Corey. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.